0: You're listening to Teach, Think, Treat, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This podcast is for healthcare professionals and students about teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting. Whilst our setting is a tertiary paediatric hospital, our experiences and challenges are shared by many professionals and students in other clinical environments. The Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land from which we provide our services. We pay respect to the ancestors, elders and emerging leaders of the Kulin Nation and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians accessing our resources. Hello, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as the tutor radiographer in medical imaging at RCH. Now, a big part of working in healthcare is working in a team environment, and there are many members of many different teams, each coming from their own discipline with a different knowledge and skill set. And the better this team works together, the more effective the team, and hopefully, the better outcome for the patient. But what are the factors that contribute to making a team work better? And when you're in a team, how much do you know about the knowledge and skill set of other members of that team? Well, today I'm joined here by Joanne Bolton. So Joe is the current interim director of the brand new collaborative practice center in the Faculty of Medicine at Melbourne University. And Joe's main work is in the development of the attributes required to make interprofessional education and collaboration practice happen. She's unbelievably passionate about this topic and it's an absolute pleasure to have her on today. So welcome Joe.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Steve.
0: So Joe, let's start by talking about what exactly is interprofessional education.
1: Yeah, a really good place to start, I think, Steve. Um There's actually a really well accepted international definition of interprofessional education, which I might refer to as IPE Mm -hmm. from here. Well, actually there's two. So one's from the World Health Organization and there's a very similar one from the Center for the Advancement of IPE. And that's a peak body over in the UK. So anytime you see IPE, it's usually one of these and it goes along the lines of occasions where members or students of two or more professions learn with from and about each other to improve the quality of patient care. Right. A bit of a mouthful, but I kind of think about this definition as having three key elements. Mm -hmm. So the who. So it's about having more than two disciplines. So it's really important that the learning purposely draws on different perspectives, which you mentioned in the intro, Steve. Yeah. The how, and that's, you know, in this definition, it's with, from, and about. Okay. So it's really important that learners engage not just learning about another profession, like bit surface learning, I learn about you so I can refer to you, but rather your learning is actually enriched learning with and from other professions to improve your own practice. Yeah. And I've actually jumped the gun there and gone to the third point, which is the why. And so to do IPE well is that it should always seek to improve your own practice in the way that you collaborate with others. So that's both with the person who is receiving healthcare and the wider health and social care team you're working with. So we kind of say, if it has those three things, then it's true, IPE.
0: Fantastic. And and there's a lot of recent work being done in this space across both the academic and healthcare with huge benefits. What are some of these benefits of IPE?
1: Well, I mean, there is one really key benefit for IPE, and that is primarily just to enhance collaborative practice. Yeah. Um, So at the Collaborative Practice Centre, at the University of Melbourne, where I work, we have a collaborative practice-ready curriculum framework, and that's what we use to build our IPE curriculum activities. And we do this throughout the years of all the different programs that we have in our faculty. Some of our programs are two years long, some are three years long, and some are four years long. So it doesn't matter the length of the program, but we engage students in IPE activities along kind of their whole program. So, you know, that is our ultimate aim, kind of what it says it on the tin, that we want our students to be ready to collaborate and we want them to be ready by the time they graduate and transition into the workforce.
0: That's what I like to call work ready.
1: Uh, Yes, exactly. (laughs) I feel like IPE might be sometimes called the hidden curriculum, so to speak. So it's the stuff that maybe we've always known as health professionals, but we haven't always kind of called it out and really purposefully thought about pedagogical design. So how do you actually get this humming? How do you get people to actually look at how they are in teams? Look, I think it's really exciting that health professions education is looking purposefully at this because I think it's, it's a change, I think, that we all know is really needed. And I think if we think about what's, you know, what we're still living through, for example, yeah, I've kind of seen it written in the literature that maybe you know teamwork matters now more than ever.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: When we're talking about IPE and we're talking about purposeful design, I think something like a curriculum framework that we have is useful to kind of help educators think, okay, so what do I do? What do I do then? So the framework that we have is adapted from a really well regarded international framework that's come out of Canada. um, And we have these six competency areas. The idea is that when you draw together from these six elements, it, it gives you a framework for what we mean by collaborative practice. Those six things are role clarification, so it is important to know, you know, what all our roles are. But again, it's not surface learning and stereotyping, but rather we know that roles change depending on context. So yeah. acute care roles or primary care roles will change even within a profession. Yeah. Team functioning, interprofessional conflict management, we know that all teams aren't going to agree all of the time. And we know there's things like hierarchies and different elements. So teams need opportunity to practice those skills. Yeah. Collaborative leadership's a really big one. That's something purposeful I think we can do to look at these um, traditional hierarchies and try and look at a more collaborative leadership model and I think that's better for patient-centred care as well. Absolutely. And lastly, interprofessional communication is really the glue that sticks all of that together as well. As I mentioned, we've got students in different lengths of programs but regardless of how long uh, a particular course of study is, we kind of look at more about Where you are in your course. So, we have curriculum for when you're early in your program, which we call um, engage. So, we want students to engage in IPE early in their program, set it up front. This is how we work. We always work in teams. So, we want students to get really normalized to that language and that idea from the get go. Um, And then we have curriculum um, in the middle of programs, which we call experience. We want students to not just learn the theory. This is not something that is you know, that you can develop by reading the books or looking at teamwork models. You actually need to go and experience it. But this is often when they're in work-based placements or will settings. And this is often when they're in work-based placements or in will settings. Um, and we're currently in the process of developing IP curriculum at the final, you know, stages of their programs. Um, and we call that enable. And that's what we really want. We want students to kind of be change makers, I suppose. We know that the students coming through are the future healthcare workforce. Yeah. We want this curriculum to be something that kind of gives them the, the tools and the skills to be able to go into workplaces in diverse settings and to and to, you know, really be ready. So
0: does it always start at the start of these courses for for IPE? Or is or does it depend on the the discipline or the course itself?
1: That's a great question, Stephen. From my understanding, it is done slightly differently in different places. And when we were looking at it, we kind of Came to the conclusion, you know, there's, there's lots of pros and cons about when to do it. Do you wait for professions to get a little bit of professional identity and then layer this on top? Or do you go early and then do more nuanced disciplinary training after? And we kind of went for in the middle of that. We actually think it goes in both.
0: The one thing that you've got to consider as well is whether like you kind of refer to professional identity and... For someone who's just coming in and they're, they're a first year student, and then all of a sudden they get thrown into IPE and they might, it, it may muddy the waters to, for them to think, well, what, what exactly is my role in this profession compared to someone else's role in, in, within a, a team environment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, we've had long discussions about exactly that, I guess, that concern or that kind of idea of we don't want students to get more confused mm. at the beginning, but we have an interprofessional education curriculum activity, which I'll talk about maybe a little bit later. It's called Ways of Knowing, and it's purposefully actually when students are very new in their program. So it's within the first few weeks of their program.
0: Yeah,
1: I think because we do it as an embedded curriculum, it's more like a touchstone, if that makes sense. So they're going through different subjects throughout their program, but they keep reading through this notion of interprofessional education collaborative practice. And what we have found from students who were early in their program. So some of these students, it's week two mm-hmm. for their courses. Um, and this is across 11 disciplines. So, you know, a really big breadth of different types of health professionals. So these are students who came in thinking I'm learning to be, you know, an audiologist or a speech pathologist or a doctor. Yeah. Um, and by doing this IPE activity early in their program, students were saying things like, I realise I'm part of a bigger system.
0: Yeah, right. So, yeah, which is extremely important, I think, to know as well.
1: That's right. It, it can be done early in programs and done really well, but I think it is acknowledging what you've talked about. So just knowing where students are at, at their learning journey. Mm-hmm. So we kind of purposefully thought about what were those learning activities and those learning triggers, knowing that these students, you know, they're week two sometimes, some of them might be week six, but they they don't have that foundational knowledge of who they are themselves. So we make sure that the kinds of things we are talking about were more around how much you communicate with others in your team, Yeah, Do you know, rather than, who's this profession, how would you refer, what's your role in the team? So, you know, that's more advanced, I would say.
0: Yeah. I mean, in the context of uh, radiography, I guess, you don't want someone going in and saying or, or coming out of their course and just thinking to themselves, okay, i just go and I take x-rays and that's it. They don't think about, you know, that they've, they've got to talk to surgeons when they're, when they're going to theatre and they've got to talk to nursing staff when they're on the ward doing a mobile x-ray, for example. There's a lot of other things that are involved.
1: So those competencies that I talked about with IP are definitely, you know, the guts of it all. Mm. But there's heaps of other stuff that I think is a little bit hidden about stereotyping and things like that. And I think that repeated exposure to other disciplines can also be helpful for kind of feeling maybe a little bit disconnected from the other professions or feeling like I only have this little interaction and I'm not really sure what to do. It does, you know, the, the whole point is to f- make it feel a little bit more organic and cohesive.
0: Yeah. So uh, this is obviously very useful as a setup whilst at university. And what about more long-term throughout the career?
1: We've kind of purposely thought about this, and i probably used the word student a little bit in our chat so far, but we are trying to use the word learner because I think that is definitely the premise that we come from, that this is a learning journey. There actually is not an end point where you say you know, job done.
0: Yeah, IPL's finished. IPL's finished. (laughs) I
1: am a collaborative practice expert. (laughs) I don't need any more learning to do in this space. So we definitely see this as a continuum and we see it more as a learning continuum. So we have learners who are learning, you know, entry to practice learners who are getting those tools and skills and knowledges to practice in their discipline. But then, yeah, we're talking about early practicing clinicians right up to consultants. If we want collaborative practice to be the new norm in healthcare delivery, And I think it's something that as an industry, we need to purposely keep engaging in. And there's really compelling reasons too. For example, there's really good literature um, internationally in this space, and it's pretty well established that if we can get collaborative practice humming really well, that it can contribute to what's called the quadruple aim. And these are kind of the ultimate four goals for collaborative practice. So, you know, we can reduce the costs of healthcare, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, drastically needed we can improve the quality of patient-centered care that's another of course really important thing looking about value-based care that's coming into the healthcare system we really need to get more and more better at this we can increase positive outcomes for individuals communities and populations the the fourth one is also really really important and that is good collaborative practice actually can increase the job satisfaction of health professionals with their own roles you know if you're working in a really high functioning team that's really supportive and your colleagues are supportive and you're supportive of your colleagues it's Just more rewarding.
0: Well, and also I think having not having the job satisfaction as well will, you know, decrease team productivity. If you've got someone in there that's not really enjoying their job, it's going to decrease how it's really going to reflect on the rest of the team, I think, as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Interprofessional education helps with collaborative practice. That helps with these quadruple aim or those four big things in healthcare. Mm. And that kind of chain is so well supported in the literature that it's actually a part of all accreditation standards. And that's for all of the health professional programs. And APRA is actually looking to create shared accreditation standards in this space too for health professionals already practising.
0: What does the literature say that has APRA actually looking for it as part of the accreditation?
1: We know that healthcare is becoming more complex, more specialised, technology-enhanced healthcare. um, And those expectations on health professionals are just getting ever more difficult. The rise in chronic health conditions that we've known about for quite some time, but that isn't changing in terms of statistics around this figure. Global shortages of healthcare workers, which we have here in Australia as well, and these increasing healthcare costs, which we know is not sustainable. We know that the current kind of setup we have isn't sustainable into the future. So these are kind of these big problems, I suppose, that are really driving that we have to do something differently. Yeah. These are the things that are really kind of that accreditation bodies are noticing as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Here in Australia there was The first ever national consultation was done in 2009, which internationally was a little bit behind some of our other OECD countries. So um, we're a little bit behind USA, Canada and UK on taking a national look at this, looking at IPE. But the Australian Learning and Teaching Council commissioned a report um, and it was called Interprofessional Health Education in Australia, The Way Forward. And so, back in 2009, one of the key recommendations—and there was many in this report—but there was one call to action, really, for the need for immediate action on IPE in health professions education. And you know, if we kind of fast forward here in Australia by 2017, yeah, we do have these accreditation standards, which is a lever for health professions programs. It means that everywhere across the country, everyone has to be looking in this space, um, and certainly everyone is. It is a little bit tricky though, because it is a relatively new approach within health professions education. Traditionally, most education is done still in silos. Yeah. There's a number of challenges in the literature around kind of implementing any kind of change, but especially one that is so big, kind of crosses so many domains. There's fluctuations in funding and national commitment. So this kind of, you know, it has been cited that IP is still a bit fragile and has these ongoing threats to sustainability.
0: So I have two questions from here. The first one is, why does it take so long up until 2009 for Australia to recognise that this was so important? I mean, healthcare has been around for centuries and now all of a sudden we've decided that we really should know a little bit more about what other people do.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, when you put it like that, like it is kind of, you know, it kind of sounds a little bit what's going on, why is it taking this long? And I totally agree. What I do take heart from is that even though the national rule consultation didn't come till 2009. Health Professions joined a peak body in 2007. So here in Australia, we have APEN, which is the Australian Interprofessional Practice and Education Network. And that was actually formed by health professionals and health professions educators before, I suppose, the government had gone on board with doing the national consultation. So I guess like anything, it's probably a little bit political. It's probably a little bit cultural. It's probably a little bit, this is the way I was trained yeah. I will train the way that I was trained because it worked well for me. Yeah. But look, I thought that was a really interesting when chronologically I was looking at the literature and going, hey, hang on a minute. We actually had, you know, this peak body set up before we even had this national consultation. And I think that's really exciting. It gives me hope thinking we've got this community of practice in Australia who can see just the way that you've worded it, Yeah, going, hang on a minute. Let's change something up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The other question I had was around the accreditation side of things. So so you talked about how it's become part of the accreditation standard. Are we talking about accreditation standards at a hospital level, so when a hospital goes through an accreditation process, or are we talking about a university accreditation process?
1: Mm, Good point to clarify. So I was actually meaning in terms of the latter. So at university, university yeah, yeah, the courses obviously go through robust accreditation to make sure that that course can be accredited with that whatever body. Yeah. Then is able to register those health professions. Um, and so that's the standards that I was referring to. So that's the entry to practice. But APRA is looking in this space. And so they have an area of work specifically around IPE and collaborative practice. And there's a document you know, that is out from the Accreditation Committee 2023 work plan, and they have a deliverable of a national scheme for IPE and interprofessional collaborative practice with a statement of intent and so that's looking at practising health professionals yeah, okay. through APRA. So that's through the, the ongoing registration of health professionals. So I don't actually know the specifics of hospital accreditation, but I wouldn't be surprised because APRA is looking in this space.
0: If it got kind of put in there. If it got put tray. in
1: there and it starts being things. And so, like unfortunately, you know, we talk about a carrot or a stick for engaging mm. in different cultural changes. Yeah. So unfortunately it is a little bit of a stick approach, putting things in accreditation. Yeah. But it works.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Teach, Think, Treat, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. So what about the content of this literature? So I can imagine that it's overwhelming, just have to sift through so much literature. It's obviously going to be hard to get your head around what's important and what's not important about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There is quite a bit. So again, that's a good and a little bit overwhelming problem to have. But I think just like anything, there's discrete sub areas that together give a whole picture. And so I think, you know, if there's a particular sub-area within collaborative practice or IPE, you can just dive in to that targeted area. For example, if you're a health professions educator and you're thinking about curriculum design, there's quite a bit of literature on pedagogies and pedagogical thinking. So what learning theories are compatible with IPE as a pedagogy? Yeah. There's a really great theme guide that I'd kind of reference out, and that's by Heen et al, 2018. And that was a systematic review. And they looked at the use of theory in IPE from 1988 to 2015. And, you know, they synthesized this all together. Um, They looked at a total of 91 papers, and they've got four areas there where they're looking around theories that might be helpful if you're looking at curriculum design and development there's theories that could be helpful for the actual delivery. So, how you might set up that learning environment for students. There's theories that are helpful if you want to evaluate did it work? What can we learn from it? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's systems level framing of the curricula. And so, you know, I thought that was a really helpful interview if that's something that, you know, is relevant to your workplace. Um, if you're actually maybe in the classroom with students, or if we use the word learners, because again, these could be health professions working in practice already, but if you're in the classroom with that delivery, there's a lot of literature around IP facilitation. A really key point there is that the literature is fairly conclusive, that it's not something that is taught, but yeah. rather facilitated. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of makes sense, I think, if you think about what you're trying to teach. And so there's stuff out there to help guide facilitators in their role. And APEN actually has a really helpful, just a two-page kind of fact sheet around IP facilitation. What is it? What are good attributes to have? What should I try and focus on when I am being a facilitator? Yeah. Then I guess depending on your context, there's pretty much good examples of a whole different range of settings um, that are looking at IPE or applying IPE. For example, in SIM-based settings, in classroom-based settings, in workplace learning settings for for students, as in those entry-to-practice students, as well as for health professions. Yeah. And some really excellent sharing of some really good examples of IPE. So I think that's really helpful when maybe when you're starting out or you want to kind of check in to see, has anyone else been in this space? There's also a little bit of explaining that there is some that maybe understanding what is maybe not true IPE. um, And that kind of goes hand in hand with thinking about what we want students to learn, but also making sure that we're not just kind of perpetrating stereotypes. So I think- that's a little bit of a careful thing. So we talk about what is true IPE being those three elements that we talked about at the beginning. So it wouldn't be true IPE if you, for example, had the two or more disciplines, but they weren't interacting with each other. So if you were just kind of, you know, maybe giving more of a lecture format, but saying, hey, but I've got two or more disciplines here and they're learning the same content. So that's that's kind of more shared learning. It's not really going to help students to develop a collaborative practice. Or if it's a single discipline, just learning about another discipline. So again, that's surface learning. Oh, great. It's great that I know that you're a radiologist, Steve, because I'll just refer to you when I need, but I'm not actually accessing your skills and the way that you see problems yeah, okay. to help me learn.
0: Yeah. The interesting point there is that I'm actually a radiographer, not a radiologist. So
1: there you go. So now you have to learn <laughs> what the difference
0: is between the two. So. so there you go. And so there
1: we go. So after being a physio for 20 years. Yeah. And, and this is kind of the point that that role clarification, it's not set in stone. It's something that I've learned today and you continue learning. Yeah. And it is that bit of humility to kind of be like, tell me about your role in this context.
0: When I told someone I was a radiographer, I once got asked whether I either took x-rays or whether I was a radio DJ. Oh. And here I am now recording a podcast <laughs> in front of a microphone. <laughs> um, so let's, let's look at students, Joe, and how do they engage in IPE?
1: Again, it's not just getting students in a room from different disciplines and giving content to. So there is a lot of thought that goes into the learning activities and you know, good IPE is very purposeful for what you ask students to do and how you ask them to do it. Yeah. Um, and there's a quote that I really love um, from Professor Hugh Barr, cites this in one of his papers that I think gives a good visual of how students or health professionals... Remembering IPE is not yep. just something for learners,
0: students. Learner. Learners, learners. We'll talk about learners, Yep.
1: <laughs> Every time I say students, check me up on that. So Professor Barr is one of the founding thinkers and leaders in the international IPE space. He's a found, one of the founders of the Centre for the Advancement of IPE in the UK that I mentioned um, has one of the IP definitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of has been working in this space since the 1980s. As you say, it's, it's actually not something new, it's just growing over the last 20 years in particular and the last, yeah, 15, say, in Australia. Um, He uses an analogy of a double mirror. So like happens at the hairdressers that we all have this vision of ourselves looking forward, like you might have when you're at the hairdressers looking at, you know, the haircut that's happening. But when the hairdresser holds up that second mirror behind you, only then do you get to see a different, which is mostly invisible to yourself, side of yourself. Um, and I really like this thinking around IPE. Um, that well-designed IPE should always have a bit of this transformative aspect to it, where you learn about yourself, something you didn't know through you know someone else's knowledge, perspectives, insights.
0: Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it.
1: Things that help it to be transformative is yeah those kind of things around how those learning activities are set up, really purposefully drawing on these multiple perspectives to gain a more holistic understanding of your role of the healthcare system, mm-hmm. of why we turn up to work every day. yeah, And that's where the multiple f- professions really helps. And if it's set up to go deeper than just what, you know, that what do you do so I can refer to you if it's more about, you know, what do you see in the scenario and why do you see that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What can I learn from you that I don't, that I'm just not seeing from my perspective? And those things are the things that can help people to be better at what I do. I guess a tangible example is we have an interprofessional panel as part of, as a curriculum activity for our first years, um, and we have 11 professions discuss the same case study and we kind of go around fairly short and sharp, just a couple of minutes, but we're asking each of those professions just, you know, this one question of what stands out to you as the most important aspect of this study, case study and why. Um, and it's really interesting to hear those layered responses. And we have, you know, some similarities between professional lenses, but importantly, some really key differences um, and some surprises of who is seeing the role of others. And so this year, for example, um, one of our medical reps that I actually see the most important person in this case study as being the social worker, when mm. perhaps those hierarchies might assume that, oh, the doctor is the most important here as a primary, case, primary care setting example. So I think, yeah, it's really interesting. There is a learning theory and it's called diverso-similarity paradigm. Again, a bit of a mouthful. But it's something that I think can be a really nice foundation for how you might want student learners to engage. (laughs) Nice. This um, paradigm is cited within cultural learning theories, but I've also seen it cited as compatible for IPE. Yeah. Um, And at the heart of it, I think it's fairly simple. In so much as it positions the learning being to explore both how are we similar and how we are are we different. Yeah. Um, And I think a real strength of this approach is that it gives a more accurate and deep understanding of the complexity of the real world. We were talking about that just before, Steve, you know, like there's differences even within a profession that you might say is quite similar. Yeah. So I think it's, it's very nuanced and layered. And so a simple one that we ask students at the beginning of their program, at that example that I've mentioned earlier, is we ask students, you know, what are the reasons that you want to be a health professional? And noting what is similar and what is different amongst a small group discussion. And for sure there'll be things that are similar. Yeah. And things that are different.
0: Yeah. And things that are stereotyped, I think, as well. Like, mm. you know, people obviously have an idea as to what things are. And, and I'm always imagining the, those memes where it says, you know, what, what my family think I do and what my friends think I do and what society thinks I do and what I really do, basically, yeah.
1: And that, I guess that's where that learning journey comes along mm. so that we catch ourselves thinking, is that really the case or is that an assumption that I'm making about another team member or i making an assumption about um, a patient um, that we really kind of – have these processes, I suppose. I think though I've strayed a bit from your original question there, Steve, of how do students engage in IPE? Um, and I guess the short of it is just in lots of ways. So as I kind of mentioned before, you can find literature about sharing IPE examples in classroom-based, at universities, blended learning environments, wholly online, SIM-based settings, workplace settings. So IPE is... a If you think of IP as a pedagogical design, it can be applied authentically in any kind of learning context and any kind of health setting context. And that's kind of that entry to practice professional training. And then once people are practicing as health professions as well.
0: So it's absolutely crucial about the about each other. So you work so much better with others when you understand what they do and what their needs are. Can you share with us, Joe, some of the IPE examples that you've been specifically involved with?
1: We actually started three and a half years ago within the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences. And over the last three and a half years, we've got a number of new IPE curriculums in different stages of development, mm-hmm. implementation and evaluation. But I just kind of want to shout out before going into examples, It's really important to say that we always co-develop this curriculum. So I mentioned collaborative leadership before as one of those six competency areas, and that's definitely how we operate in this space, not just to try and help students to learn that, but as educators and staff, we're kind of walking the talk. So everything that we develop is always with a whole, you know, a big interprofessional team. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You, You wouldn't want to be trying to, you know, create something by yourself. Thinking, you know, everything about every profession and not actually getting anything right. Oh,
1: exactly. It'd just be perpetrating, as I was saying, yeah. you know, that's a really risky kind of design. we well,
0: you'd could... have a radiologist taking your x-rays. So.
1: <laughs> exactly. And so I think, you know, we, we do this collaboratively, so it does take time, but it means that we end up with something, you know, as always, good teamwork, better outcomes. Yeah. So, you know, the very first curriculum that we developed and that was piloted in early 2020 um, and that was a pilot for four disciplines. So we kind of started with some of our health professions. That was medicine, nursing, physio and optometry students. Uh, and this program is called Ways of Knowing in Healthcare. Um, and it's an introduction to cultural safety practice and collaborative practice. And I'd like to give specific um, acknowledgement to the Wurru, Wurru Health Unit. And they're in the Department of MedEd for their leadership with this program, which has been just so important for our students and staff. So this year we ran it for the fourth time. So we run it every year at the beginning of semester and we run it for all of our new year one students. Yep. And since that pilot, uh, we've now expanded to include all 11 disciplines that we have in MDHS. So yep. that's, that's all of our entry to practice disciplines. That's audiology, dentistry, and within dentistry, that's oral health therapists and dental students, mm-hmm. nursing, medicine, optometry, physio, population and global health students, psychology students, speech pathology students, and social work students. So in total this year, that was 1,483 students.
0: Wow. That's massive.
1: Yeah. It's big, big, and it's wonderful. So students participate in these four learning activities, which takes, so it's a total of nine hours. Um, and it's, again, it's an embedded curriculum. So they do these activities. Some of them, they do asynchronous, the first two, and and then we have an interprofessional tutorial um, and a panel. So all students start their learning journey in this particular program with a cultural walk. They then do an e-module, which is self-completed. We have an interprofessional tutorial and an interprofessional panel. All of the tutorials, so for that number of students, uh, that was 48 tutorials, groups that we had this year. They're all mixed student disciplines and purposefully mixed. So not just kind of randomised with an Excel spreadsheet, but making sure that we're looking at things like Student numbers so that we can try and balance power and hierarchies and allowing voices to have more of an even playing field. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had 73 tutors um, teaching into those tutes, and those tutors were co facilitated. So, two tutors for each tut group, and that was First Nations health tutors and non Indigenous educators. So, that's an example of something that we've done like in a classroom or a university based setting. We also have new that we piloted for the first time last year, IP curriculum, and it's an example of a work-based learning curriculum, and it's called Noticing for Collaborative Practice. And the pilot last year was for our final year med, physio, and nursing students, so that was about 500 students who participated in that pilot. Yep. It takes this concept of intentional noticing, um, which is, comes from the maths literature. It's been around for about 20 years in maths and a little bit more recently, the science literature. And what we've kind of done with this work and with a team is applied that to a healthcare setting. Um, So students do an online module, which kind of primes them to this concept of noticing, it unpacks it for them, it explains what it is, and then they do a task when they're out in their workplace setting.
0: So I can already see quite a number of clinical educators wanting to get on board with this.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think it is really exciting. My key learning that maybe I'd like to share is just that there's no shortage of ways that I think that interprofessional education can be effectively applied. We have a number of other examples that we're currently working in with a development phase. So looking at curriculum for final year students looking at advocacy and and again a really big area that requires collaborative working. So good advocates are able to collaborate with a whole range of disciplines and mm. I know we talk about health and social care but actually we know that good advocacy often, often needs to go into legal frames or economic frames or different areas altogether. So that's really exciting. Um, and we've got a really great team kind of working on this and we're hoping to implement that next year as a pilot. And we're also working with the Office of the Public Advocate on a healthy discussions curriculum, and that's to enhance communication between health professionals and people living with disability. Yeah, I'm really excited about that work. And finally, we're working on something called Teddy Talk, which is a curriculum all about collaborative communication in paediatric settings.
0: Oh, that sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, I think it's lots of fun as well as really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It also sounds like an, an incredible amount of work kind of putting all this stuff together as well. Surely you're seeing some challenges along the way. Can you just talk about some of the challenges and how you've overcame them?
1: It is super exciting and I I love working in in this space, but for sure, there there are lots of challenges and these are not just felt, I think, by me, but again, the literature kind of supports these challenges are kind of, I think, endemic across a global context. But I'm really glad we're coming to this last. Sometimes these things can come up first and sometimes it can feel like it's a good idea and then when you start thinking about, oh my gosh, how many students are we going to have? How's Mm -hmm. this going to work? There's really big numbers. When you look at timetables, so we have timetables obviously in university settings, but I know out in practising it's the same issue of trying to get health professionals together at the same time. Everyone has different times that their team meets and Mm -hmm. different availability. So that kind of – all those logistical things sometimes can be seen as, oh, look, it's just too hard and then we just leave it. So these good ideas can sometimes kind of fail before they get going. But I do think it's not that it's too hard. Like from my point of view, I just think that it just needs to be recognised as a pedagogy in its own right. And just what it needs is some dedicated time and resources to mm. make it happen. You just wouldn't imagine running a sim-based learning without all of that appropriate funding and resources. I think sometimes the trap is we might try and do IP without thinking, well, oh, hang on a minute, if we want to do this amazing, you know, transformative mm. learning opportunity, mm. we've got to make sure we've got, given people enough time. So I think if we get the funding right and we get enough support, I think the other things aren't insurmountable things that are new, you know, can feel a little bit scary. Yeah. Uh, we all know that change is hard. But I really believe that those kind of things can be overcome if we've got the right resources and the right kind of staffing in place. Yeah. In my experience, so Ways of Knowing, for example, has run four years and we have a really high percentage of tutors who come back year after year. And I think that is really telling. If you can kind of get going with something, we always try and pilot something, you know, Have a good idea, pilot it, widen the circle of people who are involved. Mm. It really develops that momentum then, because I think people like it. It's a good way to work. It's also a good way to learn.
0: I think if you've got people coming back, like the tutors coming back to do it, then obviously they're enjoying what they're doing. They said they're seeing the value in what's going on too.
1: Yeah, that's right. And often it's actually tutors who are saying we need to do this more often. We need to be doing more of these sessions. And often tutors are saying I learned so much from Mm. the students from you know, different professions. I didn't realise that myself.
0: Yeah. So, Joe, with all the IPL sessions at, at the different levels, what is the role of the facilitator or the, or the tutor or the teacher?
1: Yeah, look, it's a really important area. Again, there's a really great quote that um, Professor Hubar that I remember reading from him, and it goes along the lines of students are quick to point out that IP is only as effective as the teaching has mm. been. So it is critical, actually, that facilitator role. And as I kind of mentioned earlier, the literature kind of talks about this facilitation rather than teaching to kind of differentiate how it's best done, I suppose. Yeah. And so it's really a very different style of delivery to more traditional health professions education. There is some didactic teaching which can be helpful, but it is fairly limited in my experience of how you might use that. Mm-hmm. You might use it as maybe priming or preparing but really what you want to do in IPE is guide learners towards their own kind of aha moments. You yeah. know if we're thinking about transformative learning, we're trying to set up all of the domains or the architecture around so that students can have this authentic engagement with others
0: yeah.
1: um, and see things differently and maybe have a bit of a, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. And hopefully they're positive. <laughs> hopefully they're positive moments for collaboration. And so I think anyone who's done facilitating before will know that it's actually much harder work than didactic teaching. So there are other areas, I think, in health professions education where you do facilitation. Things maybe like professionalism or communication or cultural safety practice are often more facilitated than taught. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it is a bit of a mind shift um, where you you don't actually know where the learning session will exactly go. It's kind of being constructed in real time. Those particular individuals will be unique each time. And so the discussions really are quite authentic and unique. So when I mentioned the 48 shoot groups, for example, we do a briefing and a debriefing model for all of our tutors. It is a challenging role um, and you really want to have your experienced educators in those roles too. So that's a really good point to make here too, is that because it is nuanced and complex, when we do the co-facilitation model, we'll always have one of those educators as, you know, quite an experienced educator. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in our kind of debriefing model, what we found in those 48 tutor groups when tutors share back how it went for them is it is like a little microcosm, each of those two groups, you know, there are 28 different individuals in that tutor group and you're asking them to engage authentically in these discussions. So I think it can be quite rewarding because yeah. it's engaging. It's engaging as an educator, you're learning, you're guiding students learning, you're trying to ask probing questions to invite all perspectives. And I really think your job is just managing that psychological safety yeah. and that cultural safety of those learning environments. So yeah, the role of the facilitator is actually huge and yeah, can have one of the biggest effects on student engagement. Like I do think it's hugely rewarding. So that authenticity of learning, the transformative nature means it can be just really wonderful hearing of the changes people might make. We often have tutors kind of really optimistic about future workforce. And we often have tutors really optimistic going, you know, this was such great discussions. I hope the students remember this. I hope this does change the way they will practice.
0: That's fantastic. And I think that as IPE becomes more the norm in the curriculum, it'll be really interesting to see how healthcare transforms as a whole. Like if you look at it in 10 years time, how different is it actually going to look now that we've properly really ingrained this and and it's been recognised in Australia, I think as well. Joe, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and work in this area. Where can people find information about IPE, and where can they get started?
1: Oh, yeah, really great question. And just to say, also, Steve, thanks so much for having me along. Um, it's really great opportunity to have a chat, and it's been helpful again for my learning. Yeah, <laughs> two or more professions. I think we've kind of modelled a bit of a IPE session here today. Yep. Look, if anyone's really keen to kind of learn a little bit more, the first place I'd kind of recommend is ANSAPE. So if you're a member of ANSAPE, they're linked to APEN, which I'd mentioned is the Australasian Interprofessional Practice and Education Network. And actually ANSAPE's had a real focus on IPE over the last two years, Mm -hmm. and there's been a series of really wonderful seminars on IPE. Associate Professor Margot Brewer from Curtin Uni has provided a lot of these, but also a lot of academics from other universities. They've been recorded and those slides are available.
0: Yes, I believe I've joined one of them myself, actually.
1: Oh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. I know, for example, there was a recent one, I think two weeks ago, uh, looking kind of a bit of a deep dive, looking around assessment in IPE, which mm-hmm. we haven't actually touched on today, but that is another really big area to kind of go and explore. On an international scale, there is the Interprofessional Global, and that's free to join. So it's another really great resource. It's a repository, lots of great resources, as well as there's the newsletters that come around to keep you abreast of what's happening. There's an organisation that's called Nexus in the USA. If you were to Google Nexus, it'll take you to their website and that's their national kind of centre, so to speak. It kind of is a bit of a yeah a repository for all of the IP that's happening across America. And I've mentioned CAPE already in the UK That's another really great organisation internationally. You can join CAPE. It's not free to join CAPE, but I think they're pretty reasonable memberships, but they have a lot on their website anyway. And they actually, or Spice, probably pronounced that wrong, the um, Journal for Interprofessional Care. That's actually done through CAPE. So they have links to a lot of the publications that are coming out of that journal. Yeah. And look, just a shout out too, as I mentioned at the Uni of Melbourne, we've just become the first centre in Australia dedicated to IPE and collaborative practice. We're still establishing ourselves, but in the coming years, we're really hoping to be able to provide networking and short courses and resources. And that, you know, we're hoping to, be able to provide these widely to health professionals and health organisations. So keep an eye on the Collaborative Practice Centre, where I'm working to as we keep growing.
0: You've clearly outlined IPE for us and, and what all the benefits are. And it's very likely that in the coming months and years, we're going to see a shift in the way that we interact with each other and with other members of our teams. And this is for the good of the, our effective working, our budget, and most importantly, for the great care that we deliver to our patients. So, Joe, thanks again for taking the time to speak with us.
1: Thanks so much, Steve.
0: Thanks for listening to Teach, Think, Treat, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Conversation with the Experts where professionals from the Melbourne Children's Campus provide advice and insights, tips and tricks, and discuss latest research findings on a range of topics.